So I play those at home because I lose everything. Oh, totally, I'm the worst. I've, I've left my banjo, I left, I almost left my laptop at breakfast this morning and I left my banjo in Bloomington, Illinois once and didn't realize it till the next day. And I remember the, the, uh, the owner of the club called me and he goes, yeah, your, your banjo's here. And I was like, oh my God. Like I realized that and when he told me, and he goes, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I know, I know. Greetings, everybody. Keith Billick here with another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. As promised, and as you're probably already noticing, I have taken to my suburban Detroit backyard podcast recording studio. My, I, I have a wonderful home, although the, the house itself is somewhat modest. I am incredibly lucky to have a, a great backyard, and I try to utilize the space that I have to its full extent, and that involves getting out here on these nice evenings and uh, doing my recording out here. And I promise it isn't nearly as stormy as it sounds. I almost feel like I, I sound like Lieutenant Dan strapped to the top mast of the shrimp boat in the, the raging storm. But I, I promise it's actually a pretty nice night, but the wind has kicked up here. You'll hear a bit of that. You might hear some critters, and we're going to... Uh, ignore them for now hopefully but either way we're gonna roll with it i lugged all this recording equipment out to my backyard and i'm not leaving until i get this thing done i'm not going back inside now i do have a quick announcement slash update about the podcast as you all know we are in social distancing reality now and as you also might know or maybe can tell from the sound of it I do almost all of these interviews in person, and I think that adds a lot in terms of the intimacy and the, the back and forth that, that's possible with the conversation that I have. And also just sound quality uh, is really important to me, especially when they're playing banjo and you wanna hear what they're, what they're talking about. So I've always been proud of the, the sound quality and just the quality of the overall conversation that I've been able to achieve. However, uh, these days, meeting up with people in person is tough when everyone's tour dates are canceled. And I was really lucky to have a decent number of conversations already recorded before all this business started. So you're hearing a lot of those conversations come out now. However, I am getting short on replenishing the stock for future episodes. And with that in mind, and this is actually something that I've been kind of tossing around doing anyway, I've reached out to some of the past guests of the podcast and invited them just to participate in new segments about uh, new banjo releases and, and new music that's coming out. So what I'm going to try here, and I, I actually don't know completely how this is going to turn out or what form it might take, but I'm going to be releasing several shorter episodes in the coming months or, or just indefinitely uh, that will profile a specific banjo recording and probably a small talk with uh, whoever the banjo player is that's releasing that and the focus won't be as much on the sound quality and the conversation and the background of the person like you're used to but it'll just be kind of a heads up for all you listeners of new music that you might want to check out maybe picking the brain of what went into the project from the recording artist and I thought it, that was a cool way to allow them to promote things when they're unable to uh, do that via the normal means, which is 
touring and performing. So it allows them to do that. It allows me to create some new episodes, even without uh, needing to rise to that standard that I've set for myself. But uh, I'm still going to make them sound as good as possible. But yeah, just a heads up that there's going to be some new types of episodes coming out. So yeah, that's the news. I hope to have one of those out here in the very near future. The other news, and this is not new news, but it still is very relevant news, is that this podcast is completely supported by listeners. And listeners support this podcast through the Patreon site. And that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. I really rely on the generous donations through that site. Um, you can sign up to be a supporter for as little as $1 a month. Today's podcast has two featured supporters from the Patreon page. They are Austin Cole and Renee McIntosh. Usually I have a few tidbits of information about the Patreon supporters. I actually don't have much to go on with these two. However, just based on the fact that they are avid Picky Fingers Banjo podcast listeners, we all know how incredibly good-looking and talented and wise they are with their financial decisions, with their podcast listening decisions. So wherever you are, Austin and Renee, I thank you so much for becoming Patreon supporters. And once again, for the rest of you, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. The other ways to support the show, of course, are to spread the word amongst your friends, share the links on social media, follow me on social media. I'm Picky Fingers on Facebook. I am Picky underscore Fingers on Instagram and at Banjo Podcast on Twitter. So track me down in all those places and uh, make sure you keep in touch. The other way to keep in touch, of course, is to email me, and that's Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast at gmail.com. Today's featured guest is Ben Wright of the Chicago-based bluegrass band The Henhouse Prowlers. Ben is a fantastic banjo player, and him along with his bandmates would make just an incredible bluegrass band that any of us would love to see at any venue or festival. However, the thing that I'm the most excited for you to hear about, and just something that will be very obvious hearing me talk to him, how, how fascinated I am, the, the calling card of the Henhouse Prowlers is the musical and cultural outreach they do, and their travels have taken them to way too many countries to name, but they've done significant touring to Africa, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, a lot of third world countries in which they are not only performing bluegrass to people who have likely never heard it before, but also collaborating with traditional musicians from whatever country they happen to be in with some pretty fascinating results. And there's a lot on YouTube, way too much for me to list, but you'll hear about that from him and even some demonstrations for him. And I, I can't wait for you to hear it. They've also, they being the Henhouse Prowlers, have also established a nonprofit organization called the Bluegrass Ambassadors, which in a similar vein, their mission is to 
educate and perform outreach about traditional music, including bluegrass. So all good stuff. And it's not lost on me that this is all coming at a time where maybe we all need a reminder of how powerful music can be in terms of bridging divides and finding common ground with people who, in, in Ben's case, he's finding common ground with people who, as far as their life's background, couldn't be more different than he was, but they're collaborating. So uh, yeah, it's, I, I find it inspiring in a lot of different ways. And uh, I know you will too. So here it is. Enjoy the conversation with Ben Wright of the Hen House Prowlers. Originally from upstate New York, a little town called Homer. Okay. And uh, but I grew up there and left, as most people try to do at some point in their life. I left their, my hometown to go to Chicago in 1999, October 1999. I arrived in Chicago and uh, realized pretty quickly I wanted to play an instrument, but didn't know what it was. And uh, so was this like an after high school thing that you? Uh took off? Yeah, it was, uh, I was, I mean, I, I was 19 or 20. Okay. And just, and I was smoking a lot of pot and not doing much with my life and, uh, had an opportunity to move to Chicago. Actually, I wanted at that time to work with, with homeless people. Uh, mm-hmm. it was youthful, optimistic thing. It was, actually, it was connected to the fact that my, my dad is an African historian and he took me to, Africa in, when I was 18, 17. Oh, wow. And uh, and it just whiplashed my reality settings. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, and I came back and... What countries? Uh, just the Gambia. Uh, yeah. That's his specialty. He wrote, He's written a, several books about it. Nerdy, historical, uh, university-type books. Oh, how and, interesting. And, yeah. uh, and he had to go there to update one of his books and brought me and my brother and a good friend of mine with him. And it definitely was a paradigm shift for me. And uh, I came back wanting to do something that I felt had more impact and uh, started, I found a place in farther upstate from New York than when I was from that worked with homeless people. And I started volunteering there and I lived there for a while. And somebody there was like, if you like doing this here, you should try it in a city. I know a place in Chicago that's looking for some help. So I just kind of packed all my stuff into a car with my girlfriend at the time. And we drove out to Chicago and but got- you at least kind of had, uh, <laughs> you had at least a little bit of a plan in terms of having like a contact at this. At yeah, this totally. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. a, it was a, it's a, I don't know how detailed I I, I want to get it or should get into this, but there's a thing called the Catholic Worker Movement that's been around since the 1920s, started by a woman named Dorothy Day. And some people would say she was communist, mm-hmm. uh, but those houses still exist all over the country. Uh, and they're very much off the grid, no public f- federal funding for them. And there's one right in the middle of uptown Chicago. Uh, huh. And you, I, li- I moved in there and lived there for free and you know, was shared a room with uh, various homeless guys that came through for about three years. I lived there, and uh, it was an intense work. It's not something I could ever do again. It was community living, 
and they had served dinner five nights a week to anybody that would come to the door. Right. Uh, it was powerful experience and foundational for me as a human being. And also, three months after I got there, I knew I wanted to play an instrument and happened to be walking by the Old Town School of Folk Music, and they had a banjo in the window that was uh, $199, and I had just got paid $200. Uh, <laughs> yeah, cool. And so I just, it, it, it wasn't, there was no preconceived notion or anything about it. I actually had internally thought I didn't like bluegrass music at all, mm-hmm. and, uh, but the banjo was there. It was the same amount of money. I was surrounded by other musicians at the time who played everything but the banjo, and so I walked in and I said to them, like, I have $200 if you can, if I can walk out of here with that for literally $200, right. I'll take it. Yeah, cut and, me some tax yeah. off or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and so they, <laughs> uh, they were like, yeah, we can do that, and I walked out, and I remember very vividly walking home that day and pulling it out of the case and looking at it on the couch uh, and just thinking, like, this is it. Like, this is my thing. Like, I don't have a thing right now, and this is going to become my thing. Wow. (laughs) And because I lived at that place that was very, like, I was doing my job just by being there, like making sure that people weren't sleeping on the front porch and making sure that people weren't doing terrible things in the backyard. Right. Just being present was doing your job at yeah. that place. And so Which I seems start, simple in a way, but it's it's also a pretty big burden when your home is that yeah. intertwined with yeah. your, mean, you know, you, you always have to be on, right? Ugh. Uh, and, I, you know... There are people I know that live in those kinds of places for their entire lives, and I'm never—I can't be one of those people. I did uh-huh. it for three years, and it was almost too long. And yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was, yeah. but because because of that, like I could sit on the front porch with my banjo and practice mm-hmm. and be doing my job, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I started older than I wish I had, mm-hmm. but at the same time, those early years. I was able to practice and a lot, and it was a the, the house was a magnet for this kind of ultra left and musical people. Th- those things often go hand in hand. There was a, a bookshelf full of uh, Rise Up Singing that book, Rise sure. Up Singing that has yeah. a bunch of great All the songs. Yeah. And we would every, once a week there'd be a, a not a jam session, it'd be like a singing session where everybody in the house and in the neighborhood would come and we'd play music. And I had a ba- there was a band, like day three of buying my banjo, uh-huh. I learned G, C, and D. Okay. And uh, there was a band that was pl- practicing in the basement of the house called the Low Rent Collective Ensemble. <laughs> and, and I just grabbed my banjo and, sh- and said, I'm, I want to play with y'all. Yeah. And, I remember we played two songs in G, and then they were like, all right, this next one's an E, and I was like, I'm out. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, I was playing with other people from the get-go. Yeah. And that is so huge. I really agree, but if you had to try to explain it, what do you think that that offers somebody who's just learning as opposed to just uh, hitting the books or the YouTube? Uh, that's a good question. That's something I tell my students right off the bat and I very few listen to me and I, I get it because it's so intimidating to play with other people when you have no idea what you're doing mm-hmm. but you know I think so much about of of music in general is involves interpersonal relationships whether you, you like it or not uh-huh. uh, and so if you, you start thinking about that and developing those skills of connecting with people with your instrument 
you're going to get good at that at the same rate that you get good at playing the instrument. And I've seen firsthand people who are, can sit at their house and play really well on their instrument, and the minute they get into a, even a jam session, let alone a performance session, right. they f- they they're missing some of those skills. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and and so it is definitely good to to start developing those as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. So how were you learning and what kind of music were you checking out? Because you have a pretty a pretty solidly uh, legit traditional sounding style at this point. You must have picked up on a, a lot of this stuff. You weren't just completely winging it, were you? No, no, no. I So I remember a week after I got the banjo, because this was pre... Not pre-internet, but pre-YouTube, pre... Sure. You know? And yeah. so I sat down, and I I could figure out what G, C, and D, I think the guitar player in that band, showed me. And I was, you know, with my without finger picks, doing some kind of four-string, you know, like that, that roll without picks, uh, <laughs> and following the chord changes if it was in G, but I realized really quickly I needed some, I needed a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went back to the old town school and this is a great story actually, because I got lessons from this guy named Gus Friedlander, who uh, is kind of a legend in, in the Chicago bluegrass scene. Uh, he's an eccentric guy. <clears throat> I mean, he's a staunch traditionalist. Okay. And he sat me down and was like, Here's what you're gonna do, and I remember he gave me, got me, had me get picks, and gave, and I got the uh, Pete Wernick book. Sure. And but he, he was like, that's good. You can use it on your own time. He had reams of tab that he had collected over his many years of teaching, and I remember the first tab he gave me was a Home Sweet Home, in in G, uh, and ah. it was an open. I could still play this. Uh, because uh, it was the first song I learned by memory. Uh, and uh, he, he just started, oh, and every week he would bring me a cassette tape with, that he had taped over the little holes on the top of, of the cassette yeah. tape. And he, he'd go to like a thrift store, buy a bunch of cassettes that nobody wanted because it was 2000, the year uh-huh. 2000. <laughs> and, and it was before they had come back as a hipster thing. And he recorded Bill Monroe. I, the first album he gave me was a Hot Rise album that had High and a Mountaintop on it. So whatever album that was. Then Bill Monroe, then... Newgrass Revival, like, he really... Just making you mixtapes yeah, of yeah, all the stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And and I would go home, and I would I would listen to it dutifully. That was my way weekly. It was a bi-weekly thing. I took the lessons bi-weekly. And the, the, the story about the, the lessons that's interesting is, I mean, he was a, it, it, a funny guy that I really hold dearly in my heart. But he could be difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. And he, he knew I was really poor. I was living at that place. I wasn't making any money. <laughs> yeah. And he figured out the school wouldn't let you do we- lessons every other week. It was eight 
weeks in a row. Okay. And uh, so he made me and some other kid that was oh. uh, look like one person on the okay. books. And after about a year, he got caught doing that, and they fired him for it. Oh, my. Yeah. Now, I, I love the Old Town School. There very well could have been a lot more going on behind that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm not, I'm not uh, who knows? The, the. But at least from your perspective, it seemed a little. <laughs> it was unfortunate. Yeah. It was, so I followed him up to uh, Guitar Works in Evanston to take lessons with him there and continued working with him until the day he said, You don't need me anymore. Hmm. Which, and how long did that take? Uh, I don't remember exactly. Probably three or four years. Huh. Maybe maybe less than that, but he. But that's something I'll always respect uh, because he that he was willing to lose a student yeah, just out of yeah honesty and yeah. exactly. So he said you you should you should try to get in touch with Greg Cahill, uh-huh. uh, and I did. And we had Greg and I had like three private lessons, and then we became friends. And yeah. I, I, I kind of stopped doing the lessons with him. But at that point, I was playing regularly with a bluegrass band and learning on my own, you know, so kind of finding your own way at that point. Yeah. Trying, trying to. So what kind of stuff was appealing to you? You said he gave you all these mixtapes. Did any of that jump out at you as being some of your early favorite influential type of stuff? Sure. I loved Hot Rise. I loved, I mean, Flatten Scruggs. Uh, You know, it's funny on this, on a podcast like this, You've, I've got to imagine everybody says says something. I think of that so. Stuff. I should probably implement some sort of like. Scoreboard. Okay, we all know, we all know Flat <laughs> right, and Scrubs. Right. Just uh, we'll assume that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he Gus did. My teacher did. Uh, he he gave gave me Foggy Mountain banjo, mm-hmm. and that was revelatory. Sure. Uh, I remember sitting in the garage at that place and working on Earl's breakdown for hours and hours at a time. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think that's a common experience. Like there, it still is the, the thing that happens to all of us. <laughs> Repetition <laughs> is the key. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <clears throat> this is a, maybe slightly off topic, but you and Greg kind of have a common like social worker attitude, don't you? Yeah. Is that something that you bonded with? Absolutely. Uh, right we, away. We've talked about writing a book together. Less than casually. Like, we've talked about it several times. Like, you know, he started his band in the late late 70s, right around when I was born. Mm -hmm. And they've been together for, they're coming up on their 45th anniversary. Yeah. And, but every time you blink, it's like another five years goes by. It's true. (laughs) Special consensus has their 50th reunion. Yeah. I mean, and they, those reunions are, it's comical because it's hard to get through. He has to do it two nights now because he has every version of the band come <laughs> up. And I went to the last one, and it was like four hours long. Right. But, yeah, we have, we have very similar backgrounds. You're right. He was a social worker and eventually got to the point where he had to choose between being a social worker and a banjo player, and that's exactly what happened to me. After mm-hmm. I left that house, I got a job at a shelter, and after that I got a job as a outreach worker for a agency in Chicago. And I literally got to the point where I was playing till three in the morning on a Tuesday night and then coming, getting into work at eight in the morning. And my There's boss, so was, many times you can do that. Yeah. yeah. My, and my boss was like, I, you know, I got written up for it once and like, I, what, just for being kind of out uh, of it. Yeah. Showing up. And I think I was late for the the fourth time in three weeks or something. And I loved that job. And the thought of 
getting to the point where I had to, where I got let go of it was like a wake up call for me. Uh-huh. And I definitely remember sitting down and I was like, I think if I, if I quit this job, I'm going to be really poor, but I can ratchet up the lessons. I can do more gigs mm-hmm. and hopefully make it happen. And that's what you did. And that's what I did. Cool. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. When did you start to hear, this is kind of a, a funny question to think about yourself, I guess, but I'll ask it anyway. When did you start to hear like your own style emerging and how would you like... What helped you get there, and and what do you think are the main um, uh, principles that you, that you try to play with? You know, when we when we were just starting to play in Chicago, there wasn't a ton of bluegrass going on, mm-hmm. and so we didn't. Was it basically Greg, and that's it? It was, and he wasn't. You know, Greg lives in Oak Lawn, mm-hmm. and Special C doesn't play in Chicago that often, mm-hmm. I, and I didn't really see the band live that much until more the past seven years or so, uh, because they were just on the road constantly yeah. and, and don't play in the city that much. So, and I was playing with a bunch of guys who, like myself and James, our Dobro player, were probably the guys who were serious about the playing correctly. And so I was, we were playing with a guitar player who didn't really play the standard bluegrass rhythm. And for me, that's, once we had a guitar player that could play that rhythm, it was yeah. like, oh my God, for me. Because to me, I feel like the banjo roll locks in with that, that bluegrass rhythm guitar huh. in a way. And so like in my in-ear mix, I have the guitar up as loud or louder than anything. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about that more then. That's really... Interesting. Do you are you able to explain like what you listen for or how you maybe even how you play differently with different guitar players or how that affects you? The closer they are to playing that, I, so I'm not a guitar player, so it's hard for me to describe. But you know the that thing where their wrist bounces and their the, like a, the boom strum. Yeah, thing. yeah. And the the more the closer they are to playing like like Tony did. You know, like to me, that's the most exciting thing to lock in with. And, you know, I am not, I, I, I didn't get on the Bela Fleck train. I didn't get on the, I, I'm a, a hard driving Scrugg style player. And yeah. that's all I am. And and uh, it's taken a while to get okay with that. And I'm more okay with it now than I've ever been. Uh, but 
that's what excites me about playing bluegrass is playing the the medium and up tempo tunes locked in with a a guitar player who's playing rock solid rhythm for some reason there's something about the the i remember the first time we uh, we had a guy ben benedict join our band who could do that rhythm and i just remember that first day he got on stage with us and i was just like yes this is what i've been waiting for that's great (laughs) he lives uh around here now yeah that's right that's right he moved up this way yeah yeah um you just said something like it took you a while to be okay with the with uh, <laughs> accepting your identity as a hard driving bluegrass player. Yeah, what does that mean? You you were seeing other people do really fancy Bela Noam Pekelny stuff. Yeah, and- which I have a, 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 a utmost respect for, but it's 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 not my thing. I think I started later, and I've done other other things have happened over the years that the instrument continues to mean a whole lot to me. But I'm just not – that that stuff doesn't – isn't something I want to do all that much. Like mm-hmm. I really still hold on to those early years of obsessing over Scrugg style and, and the drive. The drive is what gets me. Like my banjo is punchy, and I like it that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean that's, that's what I, appeals to me. I don't – I'm less of a Stanley guy and more of a Scruggs guy. Stanley takes okay. it a little bit too far in the that direction for me sometimes. But uh, and so yeah, it's taken me a while to get used to. You know, I, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before we started here. There's these young kids that just play circles, lights out. Oh, yeah. it's it's unbelievable. But I, you know, I'm 42 now, and and I've I've gotten over my ego with that stuff <laughs> to a certain degree, uh, and I like to drive. I yeah, liked, you know, like that's that's my thing, and that's what, there will always be a place for that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't I don't think you have to worry about yeah completely getting outsourced as, as far I'm as not, that goes. You know that I've I've eliminated that possibility because it's my band. And uh, yeah, you know. that's another good way to look at it. <laughs> so you can't fire me. That's right. <laughs> um, how do you is do you have a way that you work on that? If if your priority is is getting that solid drive, what what is your practice routine like? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely spend a fair amount of time with a metronome and g- going back to the the f- fundamentals a lot for me, Greg instilled that in me quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, you know that's he still does that stuff when he yeah. has the time right uh and like specifically what is that what does that look like what are you uh what are you doing with the metronome uh i i, I flip the beat sometimes like how do you mean like play it play on the one and the three with it on the one the three and then on the okay. with the two on the two and the four uh oh i see and uh and you know, just so pretend the metronome's the bass, and then pretend it's the mandolin. Exactly right, <laughs> and that's something I work on. I was telling you about how the guitar is the one I like to lock in with, and sometimes I, I need to get away from that some and let John, our bass player, mm-hmm. be the pulse more. And that's something I've I've started to realize over the years that I need to let him do that more, uh, so that we're all following him instead of me following the guitar player and. And the guitar player following John, and right. Uh, Hopefully, that's how it's working. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, metronome. I don't, you know, if we're working on new tunes, mm-hmm. I spend 
a, a fair amount of time with that and, and with the metronome all, along with it. We're actually going into the process of making an album right now. So oh, that stuff's how great. about to become reality for me very soon. Yeah. Um, you know, we tour so much that my own personal practice time sometimes takes a hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just the touring, it's also the management of the band that gets in the way with that. And I don't, there are definitely people who would say that that's not an excuse, but it's definitely something that I wish, I need to manufacture more time for practice for sure, but there's a lot competing for it. Have enough of that coffee and we can at least eliminate like the sleeping hours from your day. (laughs) That's right. That frees up at least, I don't know, four, five, six, something, something like that. Right, right. Do you have any other tips for people who, I don't know, are looking to play that driving style? I imagine it's, it seems to me, if I'm, I'm trying to like remember when I was learning, mm-hmm. the hardest thing to like wrap your brain around is maybe you know how to figure out the melody of a song, but then how do you like combine that with all this other stuff to to play your Scruggs version of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, is there any, I don't know, is, is there any advice you have? That's, for, a, that's for interesting. That? I mean, I, it's, it's funny, over the years, simply through playing a lot and jamming, I've definitely gotten to the point where I'm, it's easier for me to find a melody in the Scruggs style. It, but it is a, an elusive thing mm-hmm. uh, that comes with time. And, you know, I... I I was just uh, where we have a guy who just played his first show with us last night, Jake Howard, who was, we were trying to find a tune we could do to feature him. Uh, and he was playing us some, a, a fiddle tune. It was called Booth Shot Lincoln. Uh, yeah. And, uh, which I'd never heard before. Not a hard one, but they were playing. I grabbed my banjo and. Everyone knew it but you? Yeah, no, they, they were, everybody was picking up on it. Uh, but I stood back, you know, six feet from the jam and took took my time to make sure I knew where all those corner points were. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, did the same thing I was doing 15 years ago, which was apply a, a pretty standard forward roll to mm-hmm. those corner points of the melody. And that's definitely my style is I, I definitely am a... It's pretty straight m- melody player, right? Uh, and th- so that's that's what I did. I wish I could remember it now. We played it through like twice and then moved on to the next one. But uh, you know that that book, uh, uh, splitting the licks, yeah, was yeah. was pretty revelatory for me. Huh? Okay. Relevant, revelatory. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how that how that's how, what that book talks about. It's like. You find the melody before you find anything else, and you mm-hmm. add the rolls to that. And you can use licks for embellishment, but this is how to stick to the melody. Yeah, that will always be an okay thing to do. Yeah, like yeah. I hope so. <laughs> well, that yeah, that, I mean that's the thing, right? Like you can you can jump off the ledge and do some crazy melodic stuff, and mm-hmm. maybe that'll work. But like, there's never a time that just playing the good solid melody <laughs> right. won't work. Yeah, anyone who knows me personally or listens to the podcast a bit knows that I'm a sucker for like world music and especially world music combined with, with banjo. I just love that stuff. So I'm like endlessly fascinated just seeing your exploits. Explain if people aren't familiar with your band and what you guys are up to explain like the places you've been and how you've gotten yourself in these 
pretty outrageous situations taking international travel to or international touring to like a whole new art form, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's to this day never ceases to amaze me either, though we definitely shifted to making that kind of stuff a priority. Um, mm-hmm. But about five years ago, six years ago, we applied for American Music Abroad, which is the kind of great great grandchild of the Jazz Ambassadors program from the 1950s, which was this kind of musical diplomacy program that the State Department put on kind of to fight Russian influence uh, during the Cold War. But the State Department realized uh, after the Cold War that that work was more effective in uh, bringing people together than anything the State Department did. And so those programs continue to exist today right. just by a different name. And so we applied, and you know, it started off as jazz music because that was a pretty foundational part of American music. During but, wartime especially, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, now it's opened up to all sorts of genres. Yeah. Um, and so we applied six years ago. It's not a simple application process. It's It involves like... You have to demonstrate that you can teach. You have, yeah. to, you have to demonstrate some worldview even. Like, you know, they want they want to have... It's not easy work, and they want to make sure that the people they're bringing are passionate about it. Yeah, when I was in Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies, we applied for that as well and did not get accepted, but I do remember the application process being like... I think there were even maybe a couple essays that you have to write. You have to have... Dem- demonstrated abilities in a few of these yeah, areas. It's, it yeah. was strange to that th- I'd never had to put that stuff down on paper, uh-huh. uh, but b- we we got it. I, I remember that first audition. Uh, Star Moss was in the band at the time, one of the sweetest guys ever, uh, and you know doesn't talk a whole lot but okay. i remember at the end of the audition cuz you got you're sitting there and you're auditioning and there's like five people from the state department sitting with clipboards and looking very judgmental yeah, of course. and you know they <laughs> they've seen 100 bands today and they just want to get out of there <laughs> like a parallel universe oh. version of like america's got talent oh, totally, or something totally, yeah. Yeah. and uh and i remember at the end they were like okay thank you next and we we're walking out and star out completely out of character stopped and turned around and he said uh oh, can I say one more thing? And they were like, yeah, sure. And he said, I just want you all to know that we want this so bad. And if you give us this opportunity, we will run with it. And like, ugh, just thinking about it still makes me tear up. Like that, that is not in his personality, but I, what were my, you thinking when he stopped? Yeah. What, did, what, what did you think was coming? I didn't know, you know, like, <laughs> were what you is worried? Right? No, cause he never, he was too, too much of a sweetheart. It just was so <laughs> out of character for him. And in my head, I, I feel like that, played a big role. Oh, how you know, cool. Right? Yeah. You know? Oh, that's amazing. And uh, and so that first trip, they sent us to West Africa. Uh-huh. And we didn't know this but at, at the time, but that was going to be the most difficult of any of the tours we've ever done. Uh, not just because it was your first one? No, not at all. Uh, it was because they sent us to some countries that were difficult to, to go to. Liberia, Niger, Mauritania, some countries at the bottom of the the GDP scale. And, and so you mean difficult in terms of just like the experiences being a, a difficult reality to confront or difficult in terms of like physical access or safety? Bo- both. Well, not, I mean, safety, I've never felt unsafe on these. Okay. We flew into Nigeria 
the day of a bombing. Uh, and our mothers were just beside themselves. But I've never, I've never felt unsafe. They, they can't afford for us to put us in a situation where we're not going to be safe. Yeah. But, you know, Niger is arguably the poorest country in the world. And huh. bearing witness to that stuff is uh, profound, to say the right. least. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and Mauritania, too, even though they're incredibly beautiful places, uh, you know, it, it was just, it was, again, paradigm shift in a whole totally different way. When I went with my dad to Africa when I was a kid, it was a, I was under the tutelage of my father who knows the country like the back of his hand. And mm-hmm. whereas we, you know, in Niger, we drove from Niamey, from Niame, the capital, to Zinder. And Zinder is the the part nobody goes to Zinder, and it's the it's the it's one of those stops on that the journey from the middle of Africa to try to get to Europe, and it's just one of the most destitute places on the planet where these uh, where these people get taken advantage of because they want to get get out of there. Oh, uh, I see. And 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 it's you know it's just a lot to to see and take in. And it's important. It's something I feel so important to see. And I feel so lucky to have seen it, but you come back from a trip like that and it's just, you're exhausted in in a way that is hard to put into words. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. And Um, like, there's so many. uh, Yeah. We, we could, we could fill 10 podcasts with your, your tales. I had a, in, in Niger, it it is a very beautiful country and the musical heritage there is incredible. And, Uh um, we played a show in Niamey, the capital, and they always pair us up with local bands. And uh, Liberia is an English-speaking country. Congo has a lot of people that speak English. That those were on the, that trip. Niger is a francophone country, so you know I don't speak any French. Uh-huh. And it was they plunked us down with this band two hours before a performance, and they're like, "All right, figure out how to play music together. We'll we'll see you guys in a bit." Was that the premise that these bands they would? pair you with you're actually supposed to oh, yeah. collaborate it's not just like a yep. co-bill or something N- no it's it's like figure out okay. how, to, how to make music together and that which is just, super cool oh. but uh, yeah and and that was like the first it wasn't the first time that it happened but it was like maybe the second or third and this band nobody spoke english mm-hmm. and so and was, no one spoke <laughs> french of yeah, you guys right okay. uh and so we but you don't need it, mm-hmm. you know, like as, as cliche as it is, it's just like all of a sudden there's a couple minutes of awkwardness and then someone's like, uh, like motions to their instrument and they start playing a song and we, you know, I can read guitar chords off someone's hands and, yeah, like, yeah. and, and you figure it out. All of a sudden you've got one song and then we teach them one of ours uh, and like one with a short chorus. So even if they don't speak English, they can mimic the sounds of the words. <laughs> right, you know, right, right. Right. And then you go on stage and... <laughs> And like everybody's that part of the world, everybody dancing is a huge part. You got to be willing to 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 move a little bit and dance a little bit, and and the audience loves it when they see guys like us d- trying to emulate their style of dancing over there. But the coolest thing about that band was that there was a guy in that band who had a, who was playing the accounting, mm-hmm. and I knew what that instrument was. He didn't know what my instrument was. Oh, how crazy. Yeah. And so you're basically like Bill and Ted going 
like Bill and Ted Wild Stallions from the future visiting their former selves with their electric guitars show up. Right. That is insane. And he, I I gravitated to him, of course, and he was shy. He was kind of a shy guy. But I was just like, oh, you know, play the strings. play, play." And he was a three-string cone thing, and Uh it had a string halfway up the neck. Yeah. And he played them, and I was like, checked out my strings, and I was like, wow, that's tuned in F or F, yeah, F sharp. And all three strings were in tuned to an open tuning. Mm-hmm. So I tuned my banjo down a half step and we, were, down. and we played together. Effortlessly, you know, and he was playing. He had this kind of stick that I remember stuck out, kind of held held it with his fist, and played it like that. But he was still playing kind of a role with it. It was just one stick doing the role instead of uh, three fingers. And interesting. And we had that moment backstage, just the two of us, you know, and like no one was there to be like. This is historic, or you know, and and it's uh, just something that happened and it's gone to the mine. to the air. You yeah, know, like it was just. Oh, I'm, I'm such a combination of like envious <laughs> and jealous, but like <laughs> so proud of you guys Aww. and like fascinated to hear about it. Like it's just that's just perfect. <laughs> I love it. I feel love everything about it. Thanks. I mean, it it is the greatest gift I've ever been given to have those experiences, and yeah. that's that's why we shifted like that stuff kept happening because we love I think because we loved it so much and huh. like that we started developing relationships with people in the state department and we started getting calls just we didn't apply for the program anymore it was like hey I was the cultural affairs officer in Mauritania when you were there I'm in Kyrgyzstan now you got what do you guys think can you come you've it's planted like, enough seeds yeah, that they're you know, getting sewn throughout. And and we just had the most gratifying experience. We got asked to play for the Smithsonian Festival of the Lights in D.C. Part of it was connected to the State Department, the Bureau of Cultural Affairs. And so while we were out there, they had us stay an extra day, and we went to the office at the State Department, the Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs, and met the people in the building that book our tours and, oh, and do, cool. do the DC side of it. And we walked in and like people knew who we were. Whoa, which was just, just like, you're the, oh, the Hen House Prowlers, you guys do this stuff all the time. Like, you know, you guys are, we're sending you out and you're coming back. You were kind of big shots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we were big shots, but they, they love that we're doing, that we started Bluegrass Ambassadors, uh, our nonprofit. And they were just like, they just couldn't, they wanted, they had a million questions about it. But to me, I had this brief moment in that office and I was so surprised that office was a bunch of cubicles. And and I'm on the phone with these people and I'm seeing, it's this, I'm on the phone with the State Department. I I feel like they're in thrones or something, you know, like, (laughs) and, and no, they were in cubicles doing this great work. Yeah. And and uh, I walked around the office, and there were this. There were pictures on the wall of Louis Armstrong in Egypt, and, back from the jazz ambassadors, and like, and I, you know, those guys. We're a bluegrass band from Chicago that does this work a lot, and it's great, and we do it well, and I'm proud of us, and I take it really seriously. 
that's Louis Armstrong. Uh-huh. And I mean, some of those, uh, and uh, Dave Brubeck, and you know, like, oh my God. Just the heaviest hitters of them all. Doing yeah. the kind of work that we've had the uh, privilege of being able to do. Oh, and man. like, there was just this moment in there where I was trying not to choke up because I knew I had to go into a meeting with these people, you know? So incredible. <sighs> yeah. Do you learn any music yeah. while you're over there? I can't even get my words out. It's just so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we, that's, that's why the other thing was we have learned a bunch of songs uh, before we go. We get people on the ground in those countries to help us figure, oh. out, figure out what songs are popular. And really, we can only, we only have the time to learn one song because we don't just learn to play it. We learn to sing it. In their language. So are you learning basically like their version of like, Oh, Susanna or something like that? Like I, just a, no, a tune that everyone knows. No, or? it's more, although that did just happen in Uzbekistan, I think, because that was a traditional folk tune that we learned and everybody knew it because it was a, one of the country's favorite songs that had been modernized recently. So we yeah. had a modern version to learn it off of, but we found that origi- one of the original versions, but like in Africa, you're going to learn, there's so many, my understanding is that there are so many cultures packed into one country over there mm-hmm. that you're not going to learn, if you, there's no one folk song that everybody knows or it's less likely, you got to learn pop songs. Well, that's part of like the real, the, and this is such a bigger issue, but that's part of the big deal in Africa, right? That the political lines aren't necessarily drawn around the cultural right. lines. Yeah, like our or, Europe, Europeans came in and drew those lines, <laughs> right. you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, like we, the first song we ever learned is uh-huh. now the song that we get requested more than anything here in the States. And what is it? I want to hear some of this It's called Chop My Money, uh, and it's a Nigerian pop tune. Uh it's not as I can play you another one that's gonna that's from Uganda that actually yeah chop. I just want to hear something okay. something uh, otherworldly so that you've th- picked th- up. This is uh, uh, this, I've, I've played this solo bef- once before. Uh, this is from Uganda. It's by a guy named Eddie Kenzo. Who we've been to Uganda twice, and the first time we went, he was a rising star, and so he came out and performed on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, with us. And it was just crazy. It was like millions of people watching like the hippest show and TV on TV there. And, <laughs> and were, you guys. Yeah, exactly. Oh. He's got white guys in suits. And they told us, they're like, we hear Eddie's coming to the station. He's supposedly on his way. We're going to go live in 10 minutes. Hopefully he gets here. Sure uh-huh. enough, six minutes later, he walks in the door and he's like, hey guys, he's like, I heard you learned my song. We were like, yeah. And he goes, let me hear it. And we played a couple bars of it. And he goes, okay, we're going live. And we became his backup band on television in front of millions of people. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> on this song, which is called Sitialos. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a really beautiful song about, uh, you know, Eddie Kenzo came from a tiny village. He was incredibly poor. And he uh, got over not having what he needed okay. to get on with his life and grow. And that's kind of, Sitialos means don't fear loss. And uh, it's it's a beautiful song uh, that has some a, a lot of different. Actually, has twelve different languages in it. But the primary language is Luganda, which is the uh, the main language of Ugandan people. Even though the official language is English, because it was a British colony. Okay, uh, but it's but, a tribal language. It's, yeah, or it's a. I, 
you know, I'm not going to act like I can, I know the right w- words of what to call the language, but it's something everybody there speaks. Okay. So yeah, it's a native language yeah. to that country. So, uh, so I'll try to play a little bit over here. So. Three chords. I love it. <laughs> but I mean, it's three chords. I love it. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, that's the reason it takes us time is because we learn the words. And that's what connects us yeah. when we go to these places. And I can't tell you how many times we've done that. You get on stage, you play, you play that song towards the end of your set, and people rush up and start talking to you in their language. Oh. And they assume that you learn to speak it. You're and it's bilingual like, no, or something. Even, you know, like, no, not at all. <laughs> so, But that's also, it's flattering even that you could fool them for a, a few minutes. It's though, hugely too. flattering. Yeah. And we, we take it, we take it seriously. Like I spend many hours pacing in my apartment, learning how to pronounce words to different languages uh-huh. as closely as I can. Uh, and we just had this amazing experience in Uzbekistan a few months ago where we, we've started to record ourselves, a video of ourselves before we go playing and singing the song and we send it ahead Uh and for them to use on social media and in Uzbekistan, Facebook is not as popular as there's a platform called Telegram that's huge in Russia and Central Asia and they, the State Department posted the video of us playing this song Kil Palama and on Facebook, and someone downloaded it off Facebook, put it on Telegram, yeah. and like six million people Holy cow. watched the video. And so by the time we got to the country, we were celebrities. And, you know, just, I, my, I, I went five days early. I'm to the point now where I want to go and have some time to explore. Yeah. And, and Uzbekistan is a completely and utterly safe place to do that. Uh-huh. And my second day, I went to get this dish plov, which is the traditional... Uzbek food. If, if, you're, if you're in Uzbekistan, you eat plov. Okay. It's rice and lamb and horse meat and <laughs> okay. eggs. Uh, and <laughs> what did we uh, think about that? I didn't like the horse meat, but I okay. loved the plov. Okay. I mean, it was delicious. I stayed away from the horse meat. Just, right. It's a mental thing. Right, right. Uh, but uh, I was sitting at this restaurant eating plov, and I realized the person sitting behind me was watching that video on their phone. No way. Yeah, that was the first what a trip. indication. I was like, oh my God. Like, I recognized, uh, I could hear my banjo. Benzenigen, Perdizam, 
course, because that's what pierces above everything. You know? yeah. Like uh, you're like, have I finally lost it and gone insane? <laughs> yeah, right. Am I really? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the power of that kind of diplomacy, that kind of exchange. It's like, yeah. and if you show up and you've learned their music, they're so much more receptive to hearing and understanding your music. You know, mm-hmm. and like that's that's the, one of the most rewarding things about it, it is it becomes a real exchange instead of just showing up and playing bluegrass as kind of ah, oh, it's incredible. You know? Yeah, there's I mean, there's so much good music out there that yeah, why would you why would you not try to soak it in right. if you have such an invaluable opportunity like yeah. that? So crazy. Folks, I gotta hop in here still from the windy backyard studio to talk to you a little bit about the newest podcast sponsor, Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments in Lansing, Michigan, they've been family owned since 1972, but have built themselves into the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage stringed instruments. A lot of you know that I used to work there, so I've seen the behind the scenes stuff. I know how the sausage is made, and I can honestly tell you it's still the first place that I go for any of my banjo needs whether it's an instrument or any of the, the usual or unusual accessories that, that go with banjos or really other, any other stringed instrument. Um, although if it's another instrument besides the banjo, is it really considered a need? All of your guitar, ukulele, mandolin wants and banjo needs can be found at Elderly Instruments. They have an incredible selection. My favorite part about working there was that none of the salespeople were on commission. Their only job is to help the customers find the right instrument for them or the right other piece of equipment that will help them in their musical career, musical journey, musical education. They're there to help, they're friendly, they're down to earth, and they know what they're talking about. It's where I go and it's where you should go to. Elderly.com is how you check that out. Or if you happen to be in the Lansing, Michigan area, their showroom is back open and it's absolutely worth checking out. People come there from all over the world and uh, it's definitely worth it. Once again, that's elderly.com. Check it out. We should probably talk about your banjo. Yes. We have not even mentioned that. <laughs> what, uh, yeah, what are you rocking in terms of the instrument and all the, all the extras? I have, I actually have two that I switch between. Okay. Uh, this, this one is a, uh, Huber Sammy Sheeler model, right. uh, that, uh, I, I was actually gifted uh, by a student of mine who Whoa. Uh, who was fairly well off, but I was teaching him when he had cancer, and he recovered and gave me this banjo. Like, I seemed to have this kind of like a lease on life yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. And, and you know what? I you know I've always been a I'd always been a one banjo man. Like I had a, my other banjo is a Deering. Uh, Terry Bauckham. Okay. So, I mean, this relates back to what we were talking about. You know, Sammy's, Sammy and Terry drive, man. Like, neither of them, like, I know Sammy specifically doesn't really believe in chopping during a mandolin solo. Uh Uh, At least I've heard that. And I feel the same way. It's like, you lose that role in a song and it changes the feel of the song immediately. Um, So he just steps away from the mic and keeps cranking away right. usually yeah yeah seems it's like. the dynamics that are the key there yeah, <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> i can hear my band rolling their eyes if they're listening to this <laughs> like yes play quieter uh but yeah so i and i do you know as much as a oh and i i like the, the old style playing i pl- i have a pickup 
on this, mm-hmm. uh, and I use a uh, Tone Dexter. And what's the pickup? The pickup is a, a Shatton. It what I used to. It used to have the what was it called? OM two that with a microphone and a pickup that you blend together in a pack. Okay. But then I s- realized that the Tone Dexter pedals are kind of a game changer, and mm-hmm. you don't need. And that's a uh, that takes. The, so I just use this pickup as it works with the Tone Dexter. And, you know, the Tone Dexter is one of those microphone imaging. Yeah, why don't, why, I mean, I, I'm familiar, but in case people aren't, why don't you tell <clears> them with, what's so cool about that? With my limited mechanical understanding of it, it is this way of, like, the Tone Dexter pedal has a, a plug, an XLR in on it, yeah. and you plug a microphone into it, and you record, you actually go th- hit this button on it, and it listens to your banjo through the microphone, takes these frequencies that the pickup doesn't transmit and puts them back into the pickup. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. Like yeah. even, my, even my guitar player who acts like he hates the banjo all the time because it's so funny, <laughs> uh, he, even he acknowledges, he's like, whoa. Like you can, you can A, B it. Here's without the effect, here's with it. It, it becomes much closer to an acoustic sound. Yeah. It's not, it's not the second coming of Earl, you know, like, uh, <laughs> it's still not perfect, but you know, we use in-ears and I'm hearing this terrible tone with, from my pickup in my in-ears right next to inside my head. It was just making me, it was driving me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine. So the tone dexture has just been a big, big deal for oh, me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Good. Uh, and my other banjo is a Deering, Ter- Terry Baca model, which is also, it just cracks. Yeah. Right? And I love that. I mean, banjo. this one sounds incredible, so. Yeah, this is that's... a good banjo. Uh, uh, and it's not even, man, this thing sounded twice as good when I first got it. I just, you know, I beat the heck out of these things. <laughs> I really do. Uh, so, and I, and there really isn't a good setup person in Chicago. Hmm. That's uh, surprising. Yeah. Like, I know there's, I've been told there's a couple of guys out in the suburbs, but. You know, it's hard for me to drop my instrument off anywhere uh, because I we're gone all the time. So yeah. it's like it's a difficult thing. So right. Well, at least you have two now. It makes it it's probably true. A little, it makes it a little easier to yeah. leapfrog them. But you know how it is. It's like something you get used to one, and then switching back. Like the, the are they pretty different the in term, de- to yeah, get well, used to? Yeah, the deering is a walnut. Right. And 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 this is mahogany, and the neck on this one is a lot thinner than the Deering, and it's startling okay. to switch back. Uh, but so I, does it take a few days or it something? Do, it to, really does. Yeah. It really does. And uh, I miss being able to. I, I I miss the Deering, but switching back to it sometimes is a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, how about everything else? Are you partial to any particular? picks or strings or, or heads or anything like national, that? National, I mean, nothing, nothing revelatory again. Okay. Na- national, the old style finger picks. Uh, I actually have a pair that are, uh, I don't have them with me here, but the, they're the old school ones that somebody just gave me okay. years ago before they started costing a hundred bucks. So I play those at home because I lose everything. Uh, <laughs> but, and I use a Zuki. It's good to be self-aware about oh, that totally. kind of thing. I'm yeah. the worst. I've, I've left my banjo. I left, I almost left my laptop at breakfast this morning and I left my banjo in Bloomington, Illinois once and didn't realize it till the next day. And where had you gone? You like- Chicago home to Chicago. Okay. So it was like a three hour drive. Oh no. Yeah. And I remember the, the, the owner of the club called me. He goes, 
yeah, your, your banjo's here. And I was like, oh my God. Like I realized that Eddie, when he told me, and he goes, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I know. I know. Uh, so I use a Zuki thumb pick, which I've been laughed at for, but they adjust bad attack angle some. Right. They have like that weird angled blade. Yeah. Exactly. To it. Yeah. So yeah, look it up. It's it's a little little crazy. But. I like I I I've gotten to the point where I really like it. I used to use one of those those orange picks with just the little the, the little tiny piece of plastic. Oh, like up. it's giving you the finger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And is that a Fred Kelly? I, maybe. I yeah, don't okay. know. But the these these seem to. He seemed to adjust my right hand without me having to adjust my right hand. Yeah, it, it angles for you. <laughs> right, exactly. They even have different degrees of angle options. Yeah, they do. I, I use kind of a medium one. So, okay. Yeah. Um, I got to get you to the gig, but I don't want to let you go before you tell us, like, websites, oh, yeah. information of, like, how to find you and the band and the and the ambassadors. Yeah, so uh, henhouseprowlers.com and then and then bluegrassambassadors.org is our nonprofit. And, you know, I know it's, it's a bummer we're running out of time, but that's okay. We, you know, while we travel all over the world to do that stuff, what Bluegrass Ambassadors is, is we've been developing these educational programs back here in the States uh, where we go into schools that don't have robust music programs and are able to not only bring them education about American folk music and folk music traditions, but then we can teach them about music from all over the world and kind of, you know, start with our folk music and then talk about other countries and their folk music and hopefully normalize being curious about the world. Yeah, how incredible. That's great. I definitely didn't have... I'm sure I was exposed to plenty of stuff, but definitely not... That exactly. So the mm-hmm. more the more you can get that stuff out there, yeah, we're working. It, it'll help. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, Ben. We're gonna do this again because I feel like I have so much more to to ask you okay, about. Good. But uh, yeah, we'll get the show on the road. And thanks a lot Thank for your you, time. Man. Absolutely. And that's gonna do it for the episode featuring Ben Wright of the Hen House Prowlers. Thank you so much for listening. There were some sound clips in that episode in order of appearance. It was Spoiler Alert, performed by the Hen House Prowlers. Booth Shot Lincoln, performed by Ethan Satiawan. Ethan, I really hope I pronounced your name right. I think I did. Uh, Kaira, performed by Musa Giabate, playing the Ngoni, which is a similar instrument to the accounting that Ben was describing there. And then finally, Kupilama, by the Hen House Prowlers, featuring guest uh, Don Sternberg, playing mandolin on that. Thank you once again to the Patreon supporters of today's episode. That's Austin Cole and Renee McIntosh. Thank you so much to both of you. Everyone else, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Learn how you can support the show. I really appreciate all of that. Really glad to have you all with me for this and uh, hope you join me next time. Hopefully the next thing will be one of those new music updates. I hope I can get that ready and we'll see what happens with that. But uh, either way, I'll see you all soon. Uh, Everyone take care. Enjoy the beginning of your summer.